You are listening to the Edu Salon podcast, a space for connection and conversation around education. Each episode, Dr. Deborah Nedelitsky talks with a global education thought leader to provide insights into where education is now and where it might move next. Hello, and welcome to the Edu Salon podcast, recorded on the lands of the Ghana people of the Adelaide Plains, to whose elders, past, present and emerging, I pay my respects. My name is Deborah Natalitsky, and today I'm thrilled to be speaking with Jim Knight. Jim is co-founder of the Instructional Coaching Group and a research associate at the University of Kansas Centre for Research on Learning. With a PhD from the University of Kansas, he spent more than two decades studying professional learning and instructional coaching. Jim's work in instructional coaching is legendary in education. His books include Instructional Coaching, Focus on Teaching, Unmistakable Impact, High Impact Instruction, Better Conversations, The Impact Cycle, and The Definitive Guide to Instructional Coaching. Jim also hosts his own excellent podcast called, unsurprisingly, Coaching Conversations. Jim and I have seen each other here and there at conferences in and around Australia, and I'm very excited to be speaking with him today. Welcome, Jim. Looking forward to it, and it's nice to see you again. I think last time was Sydney, so pre-pandemic. It's been a while since uh, we've seen each other. It has been a while, and I think your work's come a little bit of a way since then as well, and so I'm excited to hear a bit more about that. So we'll start the conversation, and my first question is a bit of a why question, which is that you know, you've spent the better part of your career committed to this idea of coaching and to the idea of better conversations in education. And I'm wondering about why that is such an important area on which we should focus and what has sort of compelled you and sustained you to focus your attention on that for so long. That's a great question. I think we all have to make decisions about how we use our time. But to me, if you want to make a difference, be a teacher. And if you really want to make a difference, help teachers improve. And so when I work with coaches, I'm working with people who I think are high leverage people for making making the world a better place. And that's not just trivial rhetoric, it's reality because you know, education shapes everything. And, um, and so I, I started because I had my own personal experiences with research-based practices. And when I went out and provided professional development, it was useless. I mean, people were nice and they smiled and they said they liked it, but nobody did a thing. And so I became obsessed with the issue of, well, how do we how do we share these ideas in a way that works? And I first worked with Michael Fullen at the University of Toronto, and then I did my doctorate, extended, completed my doctorate at the University of Kansas. And, um, and I think that the heart of the matter for me is to get the schools our kids deserve, we have to treat teachers like professionals. And if we treat them like they're working on an assembly line and we don't honor their capacity to solve their own problems or professional discretion, we're not going to get the schools we need. So that's the heart of it. And at the heart of it is, I think it's better lives for teachers and, uh, and ultimately, probably most importantly, better lives for kids, better well-being, better achievement. And so the word impact comes up in, in your work quite a lot, high impact, impact right. cycle. And it sounds like maybe that's like an underlying, underlying principle for you, impact on students, but through teachers uh, in a way that helps teachers improve, but also honours them as professionals. So not helping them improve by necessarily telling them how to do things or treating them like everything's the same, but actually building their capacity and allowing them to go on their own journey of improvement? Yeah, I love Eric Louis's idea that, uh, I'm not sure I pronounce his name right, but Eric Liu or Eric Louis. Anyway, I'm terrible, I can't pronounce, because I love his book about mentors, and he says it's never one size fits all, it's one size fits one. And I think it does have to be differentiated 
by the person, but I see the work of coaches, the way I see it now at any rate, is it's really not about me doing something to the teacher. It's really about helping the teacher identify the area they want to focus on and then helping them go after what they really care about. So we, we, we say change happens from the inside out. If you don't have an emotionally compelling goal on the part of the teacher, it's probably not going to happen. And so it starts with that goal. And then when they have something they're really keen to hit, and teachers are learners. They just don't like professional development as their way of learning in many cases. But they're learning. You know, we look at the way a teacher teaches a class, first hour and eighth hour. It's going to be significantly different. They're going to be learning all the time. So if you can identify the thing the teacher really wants to go after, the thing they think about when they wake up in the middle of the night, then your coaching is really easy. Then all you're doing is you're just helping them go after the thing they want to do. If you're trying to talk them to something they don't see the value in, it's, it's really hard to make it happen. So there's a collaboration in the coaching process and there's an ownership by the teacher and it's driven by them. And that one size fits one, that differentiated approach is really interesting um, because my doctorate was in coaching too, but probably a different type of coaching. So it might be appropriate to pause and just maybe for our listeners set a bit of a parameter around when you're talking about coaching, what does that mean or look like in, in your work? Well, there are lots of definitions of coaching, but when I'm talking about coaching, I'm talking about a st- instructional coaching. And an instructional coaching is a particular kind of coaching, um, like uh, facilitative coaching, like, say, growth coaching. Uh, an instructional coach positions themselves as partners with the person they work with. I think uh, facilitative coaching, like cognitive coaching or growth coaching, they pretty much come from the same same set of beliefs that guide it, the same state of being. And they involve the same kind of skills, although they're articulated differently, the way you listen, the way you ask questions. And then there's a different framework for conversation. But in instructional coaching, the instructional coach has expertise. They just don't act like an expert. So when the teacher says, I really, I don't know what, if I knew what to do, I would do it. The instructional coach has a depth of knowledge about instruction. And so he or she says, well, is it all right with you if I share some ideas and you see if any of these ones would work for you? They're not there to give advice. They're not there to tell the teacher what to do, but they share resources and they always position the, the coach as a decision maker, just like a facilitative coach would do. Uh, but they, they have expertise. They just don't act like experts. They act like partners. So it's a facilitative coaching partnership, but one in which your instructional coach has that real expertise about what could work or what strategies might work in a teaching situation that they might offer up through that partnership to keep the conversation going and to help the teacher in their reflections? Yeah, we would call it dialogical coaching. And so uh, in a dialogue, there's a back and forth flow of information. You know, it's uh, people sharing ideas, people thinking together. So I don't hold back my ideas, but I don't share them in a way that, that diminishes the other person. I don't say, oh, I know exactly what you need to do. I had this class a few years ago, and this is what I did. Because whenever you get into that, you usually get into this vicious cycle of, well, I've already tried that. It's not going to work. No, I think you should do this. And and so we don't get into telling the person what to do, but we do share resources in a way that they can choose. So, so philosophically, it's the same as facilitative. But a facilitative coach works from the belief this person already knows what they need to do to solve their problem. Instructional coach says there's a body of literature, billions of dollars has been spent on identifying effective instructional practices. And if I can have a a pretty good understanding of that, and also I need to know how to set goals, if I have a pretty good understanding of data and and teaching strategies, and I share that in a a way that honors the capacity of the 
teacher to use their own professional judgment, that's the that's that's going to be helpful. And it may well be we never move into the dialogical phase. We might the teacher might already know what they need to do. They might and I'm just going to help them plan it like any other facilitative coach. But if they don't know what to do, they've really hit a wall. Mm. It's helpful if someone can say, well, here are some possible things you could do, and I can help you implement. And we can see if we can go after it. That's a dialogical coach. There's the bringing of expertise, but the intentionality of the conversation is that it's about the capacity building of the person who's being coached rather than the coach necessarily coming in with the view to share that expertise as they would like, rather to look for where it's useful to the person they're coaching. Yes, it's, and it's, that's exactly it. And, and it's, it's not easy to do because you're sitting there and you're just sure you know exactly what the person needs to do. And you, you just really want to say, you know, if you just taught the expectations up front for behavior and you reinforced it when you saw it and you correct it, when, you know, you, you want to go and tell them. But the moment you do that, you extinguish the opportunity for the other person to learn. You probably engender resistance because I don't fully know their life experience and what they think. You take away motivation. And I call it coach-splaining. You know, it's kind of like mansplaining. You know, you get in there and I'm going to tell you what to do and and the person just doesn't really, you don't really engage unless unless it's driven by their decision-making, their choices. So when someone's thinking about bringing in an instructional coaching model into a school or a department, how do you make sure that you've got these unicorn people who both have the understanding knowledge of the high impact or, you know, effective teaching strategies as well as the capacity to coach in a way that doesn't extinguish the learning of the other person. How do you make that work? Yeah, I don't think they're unicorn people. I think they're just like <laughs> teachers. I think teaching involves a lot of expertise and knowledge too. I mean, any profession has a body of literature. You have to learn and master it. You know, you don't just show up. But for, for us, the way we've described that and uh, is the idea of creating a playbook. And you say, uh, here are the highest leverage teaching practices, the highest impact teaching strategies. And we may not use it, but I have that as a reference. And in the creation of the, of the playbook, the coaches who create the playbook, they get a depth of knowledge that's essential for helping people learn how to use things. You, if you only have a superficial knowledge, you're going to get superficial implementation. But even there, when we explain a strategy, we say, well, I've got this checklist that describes the strategy, but you probably want to modify it to make it work for you. So let's go through it and see how you want to change it. And if the teacher says, you know what I'd like to do? I'd like to just butcher this practice. I'd like to do it in a way it's never going to work. What do you think? I would say, well, uh, here's why I would do it this way, but you know your class, you know your students. We have a goal. Let's see if you hit the goal. If you hit the goal, great. If not, we'll come back and we'll, we'll modify it. And so I don't have to tell them what to do. I provide the resources. And, they do, and the reality is, <laughs> even if we don't take that stance, they're going to do what they're going to do anyway. Just because we tell them doesn't mean they're going to do it. So I think it's just, it's just accepting the reality that professionals make choices. And... All adults are pretty, even children are skilled at nodding your head yes and doing nothing. So just because you tell people to do it doesn't mean they do it. So let's just recognize choice exists. And, and by giving people choice, greater momentum, greater motivation, more likely that they'll implement and implement more effectively. That's kind of how we see it. And I think that was always one of my big realizations when I was being trained in coaching was what was actually going to have that impact. Because it's it's all very well to have very good intentions and to give a lot of what one consider might to be great advice, but actually what is actually going to have that impact is when someone is driving their own learning. And so it's right. actually about how we facilitate that. But as you say, it's kind of hard to do and sometimes it does feel counterintuitive. 
Yeah, that's true. You have to learn how to do it. But like anything, you learn it through experience. When you experience the power of asking a question, instead of saying, hey, I think you should do this, ask Michael Bungay Stanier's question. You've probably thought a lot about this. What do you think you might do? And have them give the idea. They'll often say exactly what you were going to tell them. But it's a lot more powerful when it comes from them. And one more thing I'd like to say about the teaching strategies is, I mean, it's, research is important, but uh, there's great debate amongst researchers around which are the most powerful strategies. If you pick up visible learning with John Hattie, it'll identify some key things. If you pick up classroom instruction at work, classroom instruction that works is sort of the new version of Marzano by Brian Goodwin. It, it identifies some different practices. It uses a different model of research. So we believe you need to look at the research. You need to know what the evidence says so people can make decisions. But we also really believe in local validity. And so if you, if you set a really crystal clear goal and the strategy helps you hit the goal, then that's something you start to keep in your playbook. And, and the playbook becomes the receptacle for organizational knowledge about teaching practices. So, so what matters is, did it really help us hit our goals? I don't care if it's your Ouija board. If it helps you hit your goal, it's great. You know, what matters is that it, it helps you get there. And there's probably going to be some, some practices with a reasonably high effect size that aren't that powerful in your environment. And you're going to have other other practices that uh, aren't well known, don't have an, an effect size, but they particularly work with your group of students in your setting. So, so getting, keeping, but it, it has to be uh, a rigorous, it has to be, we have a really clearly defined goal and we really did hit the goal. That's, that's what has to happen. So you measure impact by, by having the goal, looking at the impact. So there's that balancing between knowing and having an awareness of what research might tell us is likely to be effective, but also really honouring the teacher's knowledge of their own classroom and context and students and community in terms of, and then being able to test that out in their own classroom uh, to be able to see to what extent that's working. And you talk about a goal as being really important. Have you got any examples of the kinds of goals that teachers set and then how they might know if they are hitting those goals? First off, just the one more thing is that I see the playbook as something that evolves over time. So as you work with more and more teachers, you say, well, you know, this, this strategy isn't as effective as this strategy, or we're using this strategy, but I learned this from this teacher. And so it's a place that's continually to document digital or however it's probably digital, that's continually getting better because you're learning from all the teachers and in the environment you're working. It could be a school, it could be a whole district. But that's how I see it. In terms of goals, we would say the goals are usually going to be either engagement goals or achievement goals. I don't know how deep I go into this, but engagement goals would be behavioral or cognitive or emotional engagement. So emotional engagement might be, I want my students to feel safe at school, psychologically safe. And so there's any number of ways of measuring it. It might be interviews. There's some digital ways of doing that. But it might simply be just a little exit ticket at the end of class every week uh, how safe did you feel in class this week and what would help you make you or maybe on a scale of one to five how safe did you feel with five being i really felt completely safe and one being i didn't feel safe at all and what 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 could i do to help you feel more safe in class that's an example of a goal but it could be you know observing time on task if it's a behavioral goal cognitive you probably have to kids give you some kind of feedback for achievement the first thing you have to think about is uh what's the level of learning is it, uh, we, we talk about knowledge, skills, or big ideas, or content knowledge, procedural knowledge, or uh, conceptual knowledge. And then um, what are the kinds of learning that's taking place? So is it a, 
Is it acquisition? Is it connection? Or is it transfer? And then there's a whole host of ways of measuring that. So you could measure it through probably knowledge. You could measure pretty easily through, say, a brief constructed response or selected response like a multiple choice. But when you get into more skills, you may need to use a single point rubric or uh, an analytic rubric. And when you go into things like transfer, you may want to use interviews as a way to assess what's happening with kids. Or there's other things about ways you can observe the what's called a close watch. It's sort of a variation of what was called kid watching. So there's lots of different ways you could measure, but you have to say, okay, what I'm really interested in is can the kids transfer their knowledge? And I want to measure that through a rubric or however you want to do it. And so so we have, here's the, here's the level of knowledge, here's the kind of learning, here are the data tools we use to assess it. That's how we do achievement. And we would argue that engagement is just as important as achievement because engagement is the reason kids drop out. The literature is pretty clear. When kids don't feel safe in school, when they don't feel like they belong, when they don't have hope, uh, they're going to drop out. And so focusing on engagement, if our schools are meant to be equitable, we probably need to focus on engagement and achievement, not just achievement. So that's, that's how we do it. And so when we're talking about instructional coaching, the coaching piece is one piece of that, but there's also knowing the strategies and embedding it as part of that process of what you're sort of talking about now of observation and implementation. Are we getting into that impact cycle space when you're talking about some of those ways in which you might observe, implement, know, refine? Yeah, so the way the impact cycle works is we start with a clear picture of reality. And so it could be video, a teacher watches video. It could be interviews of the students. It could be what's called a close watch where the coach teaches the class and the teacher looks at each student and tries to figure out what the student needs and what the, the student is feeling. And they, they assess their own feelings about that student and the source of those feelings. And they look at each student. It could be, could be looking at student work, any number of different ways, but you get a clear picture of current reality. And then once the teacher's got a clear picture of current reality, then we ask them questions about what are you not seeing your students do that you'd like to see them do? We probably want to take a solution-focused approach. So we'd say something like, so on a scale of 1 to 10, how close was that video to, to, the, to the way you'd like it to be, to the perfect class? And they'll say, well, it's like a 6. So then, okay, what's it going to take to move closer to a 10? And uh, they'll start talking about the changes. And so we'll paint a picture for me and Okay, do you want that to be your goal? I mean, would you really care about that if that was your goal? Okay, well, how could we measure it? And then we move into the measurement. And so then we've got a goal that they want. And then once we've got a goal, then we describe, just like you would do with anything when you're helping people learn how to do it, we describe it and we model it. But modeling could be we watch a video or could be we go watch another teacher or I could go into your class. It depends on what works for that teacher. Then they try it out. Probably doesn't work. And so then you have to make adaptations because the first attempts almost always fail. It seems great in theory, but when you try it out, it's like, eh, you got to change something here. Maybe it's the wrong strategy. Maybe the goal's wrong. Maybe we're measuring the goal wrong. Maybe it's the right strategy, but we need to change how we teach it. Maybe it's going to work. It hasn't worked yet, but you, you mess around. It's, it's really adaptive. It's, it's really adaptive change. Given the complexity of the classroom, the only thing that makes sense is adaptive change. And also, I suppose, before you even say what's your goal, you've done that exploration of where's the class currently at, where are you currently at, what are you noticing? So the goal emerges out of observation and real looking at where the teacher is and where the students are and therefore what might be the next step. Yeah, we're not so big on observation. 
we really believe that the teacher has to determine for herself what she sees. But it's the teacher observing either themselves through video, those getting the idea about reality processes. The trouble, I'll talk about that in a second. The trouble with observation, mm. since I opened that door, is the teacher probably doesn't have a clear picture of current reality. Because of defense mechanisms, perceptual errors, none of us really see reality that clearly, no matter who we are. And so you need something that cuts through that. And so if I sit down with the observation data and I share it with the teacher, there's a good chance they'll say, I think it's like that, because they literally don't see it. They don't see it because of the way their brain deals with things. We explain away problems. We have perceptual errors. So getting a clear picture of current, but you're absolutely right. When we get a clear picture, when the teacher, if they use video, for example, we say, here's a few, few observation tools to look at your video. And one of them is going to be about watching yourself. And one of them is going to be watching your students. And we've found that if you don't give them that form, they don't get as those tools to assess their video. They don't get as much out of watching the video as when they just watch it. And also that, that assessment tool, that observation tool, it, um, gives the coach a chance to sort of explain some things that the teacher might not ordinarily be looking for. So it's a really, really useful thing, but it could be any number of things. It doesn't have to be video. It could be the close watch. It could be interviews. It could be something else, but, but yeah, so they, somehow they've analyzed the data, whatever the data is, say video. And after the analysis, they're, they're talking about what they're not seeing that they'd like to see or a different future they'd like to have. I'm just wondering about school culture as you're talking about these things, because there's a certain vulnerability for teachers in, um, you know, watching videos in someone, you know, in them observing students and in being really honest about those things in the classroom that are working well and maybe those things that could be improved. What are your observations around what's needed in a school in order for this kind of a process to be one in which teachers feel safe to engage? These are such great questions. It's really important. Um, the culture of the school. It's going gonna, it's gonna to make or break the, the idea of video in particular. What we found is it varies much more by school than it does by person. So if you go to a school uh, and you might find that every teacher or almost every teacher is perfectly comfortable with watching themselves on video or, or no one or maybe one or two people. And it's going to be one or the other most likely. Or it may vary by department too. So uh, having a psychologically safe environment is going to go a long way towards uh, opening up the opportunity. But if you're in a place where people are hesitant to do video, I wouldn't force it on them. I'd say, well, here are some ways to get a clear picture of reality. Which one of these feels like the thing you'd most like to do? You know, Here's the argument for video, but if you don't want to do that, we can do something else. And usually the first question is, who's going to see the video? <laughs> And I think one of the cool things about coaching, and one of the real reasons I first got involved in the first place, is when you talk to people one-to-one, -one, you, you sort of step out of the culture and you, and, you, and you see the real person. Even moving to two people, you get the cultural norm. But when you talk to a person one-to-one, -one, you make a different kind of connection. And so even if you're in a not particularly safe a culture or a culture in transition, hopefully moving towards a more safe culture. I think, um, I think the one-to-one -one opens up some opportunities. And when you're thinking about that one-to-one, -one, are these instructional coaches, let's say, colleagues within the organization who are part of that culture themselves, or does it work also or better or worse if you've got instructional coaches that come in from outside of the organization? Is this something that should be happening internally or is this something that can be 
brought in from elsewhere. I'm wondering who can be the coach. Yeah, I think the important thing, okay, the first thing I'd say is it, it really depends and I don't really know what the answer is. Uh, we've had settings when we were, we had a, like a 10 year period where we were working in the same district and uh, that's where we did a lot of our preliminary work on coaching. And sometimes it's almost like the coach of a football team. You've got to, sometimes you got to, the coach has got to move on. Damian Hardwick left Richmond, probably going to go play for Gold Co- Coach Gold Coast. Probably Gold Coast will take off and his time was done in Richmond, you know. And uh, and that's the way it is. Thank you, Jim. Our Australian listeners appreciate your knowledge of AFL. <laughs> <laughs> I'm a big AFL fan. But, um, but I think uh, sometimes the coach, I, I think it really depends. But I, I think it has, the coach has to be uh, someone that's respected and uh, responsive. You know, it's going to be, if, if people don't respect the coach, uh, it's going to be, it's, and so sometimes it's a little more difficult for younger teachers to be coaches because they're like, who, what are you going to teach me? But once people get into the coaching process, if the, if the coach uh, does have expertise and they are able to, and they are effective teachers, they'll, they'll develop credibility. If they help people reach out to more kids and they help people save time, then word will spread. They waste time, word will spread too. Mm. So, so if the coach is effective, they're going to develop their credibility. And then part of their effectiveness is they understand these elements of what an effective coach is and what they do. And is part of that credibility themselves being a well-respected teacher? Yeah, I think it's, it would be difficult to be an effective instructional coach if people didn't respect you as a teacher. I think, I think uh, it might be easier from, for some other forms of coaching, but I think in instructional coaching, uh, I mean, trust is about credibility. What's, this person's got something, competence. They're going to teach me something. They have, they have something valuable to share. And I think, I think you need to be able to go in the classroom and demonstrate it, whether you're, you've only been teaching for a few years or you've taught for many years. If you can go in and model the practices and people know you're, you're uh, effective as an instructor, that's going to be an important part of being an effective coach. Instructional coach, at any rate. And I'm just thinking your first book on instructional coaching was in 2007. Right. And then more recently in 2021, you've written the definitive guide to instructional coaching. I'm wondering what, if anything, has changed over that time, like as you went and revisited your maybe original thinking around instructional coaching and where it's come since then, are there things that have changed over the years in terms of how you now approach this? Well, clearly I haven't gotten more humble with a title like Definitive Guide to Instructional Coaching. But um, So that hasn't changed, but I'm working on it. Um, in fact, I'm actually writing about humility as we speak. Um, Definitive Guide to Humility? Uh, no. <laughs> I, 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 think, I, think, I think the thing about humility, we'll be back on track in a sec, but the thing about humility, or this is what I'm exploring is, first off, pride is a monster, and it wants you. And, and if you give in to pride, it's going gonna, it's gonna, to... It's going to damage your relationships. It's going to keep you from learning. But humility doesn't mean we mope around like Eeyore and Winnie the Pooh. Humility is still combined with confidence. So I can be open to the other. I have the courage to change my views, to embrace other people's perspectives, to put other people ahead of me. But as a coach, I also really believe in the process, and I'm confident we can make this work. So I think sometimes people think confidence and Humility or antonyms, but I actually think when it comes to teaching and coaching, they go together. I'm going to be a lot more effective if I'm confident and um, I have 
maybe I'm not core humble, but I'm striving to be humble and striving to be open. But in terms of changing what we've changed, I think the beliefs behind what we do have stayed about the same. The partnership principles, we've fleshed them out and expanded more about how action shapes belief as much as shape belief shakes action, but still the principles have remained the same. But almost everything else has changed. <laughs> so the the, the the idea that we would use goals, it isn't in the first instructional coaching book. And then we clarified the kind of goals, what we call peers' goals is our way of doing it. And the power of video to get a clear picture of reality. And then the use of checklists and dialogical explanations. Now we talked about checklists in, uh, in the early book, but the way we talk about sharing ideas as a as a back and forth dialogical conversation. And then the whole process of the impact cycle, identify, learn, improve is new. The playbooks are new. The way we gather data is new. And so we're, and we're changed and, and there's things that have changed since the definitive guide. And so we, we really believe deeply in learning. Our little catchphrase is keep learning. And as an organization, as a group, a community of people, we're trying to learn all the time. So, so it's, it's dramatically different. Um, the, the kind of goals we set, the kind of questions we ask, the process we follow, the data we gather, the strategies we share, the way we share the strategies. So the whole thing's quite a bit different. It still comes from the same philosophical foundation, but it's, it's a pretty different, pro hopefully more powerful and easier to use would be our goal. Mm. Can you talk a little bit more about the partnership principles? Because I think those are really core underlying principles for these because I think one of the books that I really am drawn to of yours is even just the better conversations one which is less about this like quite a specific process for right. improving teaching and actually about what I probably experience now in my work which is one conversation like one conversation at a time you change culture or you build capacity or that the importance of how we talk in a place to with one another um, and I think the partnership principles really feed into that as well so perhaps you could talk a little bit about those. I'm very uh, conscious of uh, time. I'm 68 and time is flying. And, uh, and so I want to make every time, every minute kind of count. It's not that tense, but I, I do really want to say, well, that was time well spent. And so I think um, when we have a, a good conversation, we look back and we say, oh, that was such a good, that was time really well spent. And it's, it's what Paulo Freire would call the, a mutually humanizing conversation. We're both better for having the conversation. And not necessarily a happy conversation. Actually, I've been reading a lot about suffering and being an ally with people who are struggling. And, um, and it could just be that the conversation was just exactly what that person needed. And I think, and Brene Brown and many people would say the same thing, we are wired to have connection with other people. And so, um, but part of the reason it's really comes down to humility. Part of the reason those conversations fall apart is it's hard for us to connect with others when we feel they're driven by self-interest. And uh, it's easier to connect with someone when we feel they have their best, our best interests at heart. And it's hard to connect when we feel people think they're better than us. And easier to connect when we think they, they see us as partners, as equal. Hard to connect when people try to control us easier to connect when we feel the person really acknowledges me as an autonomous human being who can make their own decisions for themselves. And, and when we have a situation where someone just sees what's negative, it's not as powerful as when someone sees our strengths. And um, when someone asks 
more and, and tells less, we're more likely to embrace it. And then when, when what we're doing is grounded in real life, and when that person really thinks they can learn from me, and I can tell that they expect to learn from me, and they, then it's more, and, and, that, and that's sort of in a, in a way what the principles are. You know, we have words for all these things, quality, choice, voice, dialogue, reflection, praxis, reciprocity, but it's really about establishing a conversation where two people use their time in a way that they look back and say that was time well spent because there's this respectful, benevolent interaction between two people. That's the, that's the goal. And in a way, all this work is about trying to have more conversations like that. You know, I think the idea that a few smart people will come up with a plan and then everybody else has to do it is dehumanizing. And I think a conversation grounded in well, you tell me what you see first. I'd love to hear your perspective. And, oh, that's a great idea. I think that kind of conversation is humanizing. And mutually, we are, as Susan Scott says, when you ask, a, this is a paraphrase, but when you ask a real question and someone answers a real answer, somehow both of us are validated by the experience. And that, that's the idea, that we're both better for, for a, that kind of conversation. And given the brevity of time and how prevalent conversations are in life, you know, to strive for that. I think is a, a good thing. I'll just say one more thing about this, which is I think we have a notion that we are one kind of person. Oh, I'm, I'm sorry, I'm just judgmental. I judge people all the time. Or I'm not a good listener. Or I interrupt all the time. But I think we are more than one thing. I think one day I didn't have a very good sleep and I'm not really good at controlling my emotions today. I was up all night. Next day, I'm well rested. My team won the game, and I'm really in a good space. And now I'm now I can make space for you. Now I can really listen, and now I can be non-judgmental. Maybe I was judgmental yesterday. Maybe I'll be judgmental tomorrow. But in this moment, in this conversation right now, I can do better. So I don't think we're. I think we limit ourselves to think we're one thing. What matters is not past. What matters is not future. What matters is this moment right now with this person. I think that's. And that gives me a lot of hope because I know I've had lots of times I've screwed up, but I can, in this moment, maybe it can be good. And, um, and the other thing is I think people sometimes define us. Oh, you know, he's, he's this or she's that. But I don't think we should be defined by other people's definitions. We should be defined by this moment right now, this conversation, this six minutes with my 10-year-old. You know, that's the thing that counts. So that, that's something I've thought a lot about recently. It gives me hope to think we don't have to be perfect. We can, we can just try to make this one count. I mean, that's really powerful reflection. Uh, and I'm thinking about bringing it back to schools as an environment, maybe other organisations as well, where there's often an improvement agenda. There's often a sense that we need to have efficiencies and we need to tick things off and get things done. And we're either looking at the past to an analyse it or we're looking to plan for the future with strategy and, and next steps. And so I think the two things that really struck me about what you just talked about were presence. So being in the moment and in the now, and especially right. when someone is there to have a conversation with you, that it's not about being in the past or the future or in a, a mode about efficiencies and getting things done, but actually being with that person and that notion of the humanizing conversation mm. that's based on a respect and benevolence. I think that's that's really how we change how people feel in an environment and how we, yeah, I think that was really powerful. Thank you. Well, 
I only know all this because I really need to learn it. <laughs> I guess I, I wrote, I wrote the book Better Conversations because it was the book I needed to read. You know, I and I'm, I'm still struggling to, daily to be better at it. But hey, I'm trying, and this this time might be better. And um, and sometimes I do have really great conversations. You know, sometimes I'm fortunate to, you know, the things line up and it's a great thing. Other times yourself gets all kinds of things can happen, but, uh, that's, that's what I'm thinking. Well, there's some interesting things there around self-awareness and that, that, ta- that sort of motto you said of keep learning. But I think if one of the world experts in conversation is still working on conversation, uh, you know, there's something there about just how much work that is, um, self-work, I suppose, for all of us to think about how we can be in the moment with people and have those conversations that are about humanity and being together with one another alongside one another. Yeah, and give yourself a well. First off, world expert sounds pretty highfalutin, but nonetheless, I think that's uh, probably that's probably fair. I think, Jim. <laughs> I never thought of it that way. That sounds that sounds great. I wish my mom could hear this, but uh, yeah, I think you also have to give yourself a break. You know, Kristen Neff talks about self compassion. You did your best. That's good enough. You can't do any better than your best. Didn't work out. Tomorrow's another day. I mean, I think we were particularly educators because they go into their work because they do want to make a difference and. They're confronted with failures and disappointments every day because children are such complex beings, you know, and they bring so much stuff. So it's a hard job. And I think, you know, you're you're raw sometimes after teaching a class and you're not always at your best with your colleagues. And you could then you can spend the whole weekend upset. You did your best. Try it. Monday's a new day, you know, and everybody messes up. You know, it's just it's just there's this city, I think it might be San Francisco, where they the bus drivers know that every year they can have four accidents before they get in trouble. And so they, that gives them the freedom to drive courageously unless they get to three, I suppose, but they, they know like I've already got, I've got some, I've got some margin here for error. And I think that's a good way to approach this. Like I'll try my best and you know, and you're absolutely right. Self-awareness is a big part of it. Working, getting clear on what's working and what's not working. That's, that's another valuable part of this process well we're coming to the end of uh that's <laughs> taking me on quite the journey um jim but we're coming to the end of our time together and so i'm going to move us to the final five questions of the podcast which i like to call the enlightening round uh, and one okay, of them good. the first one is what is something unexpected that people might not know about you i eat vegemite every morning for breakfast when i'm home Wow, that's did you I, know that? I, I did mean, not. I, AFL I, I, and Vegemite. You're basically an honorary Australian. I think I am actually. I'm Canadian, you know, not American. I grew up in the U.S. I'm in dual oh, citizenship, okay. but, but I, I grew up in Canada, so I have, I have a connection with Australia in that sense. I think Canadians and Australians have a lot of similarities. But yeah, I love Vegemite. I can't wait to get back because I in the U.S. you can get the little glass jars, but man, they've got like gallon tubs in, in the grocery store in Australia. So I can't wait to get the, the traveling tubes. I'm going to get a bunch of those and to bring them back here because you can't get the tubes in the U.S. The tubes. Okay. Well, that's now I know what to, you know, send <laughs> as a thank you gift. Um, <laughs> what about something, Jim, that's currently on your desk, real or metaphorical? Well, I'm, I'm working on the concept of humility. I'm writing a, writing a column about that and uh, how – uh, I think we mentioned this before, but how humility uh, doesn't mean you're not confident. It just means that you're open to change. So I think humility is about having the courage to change. And when it comes to you know interactions around ideas, it's having the courage to change your ideas. 
you can't learn if you're not open to hearing other perspectives. But that doesn't mean you sort of mope around and you don't approach your process confidently. I don't think people are inspired by people who lack confidence. You know, if I have somebody who's going to partner with me to help me improve, I'd like them to believe in their process. So I think you can be humble and you can be confident at the same time. That's that's what I'm, I'm checking out on ChatGPT to see all the research articles that have been written about it. So that's, that's what I'm on, mm. it's humility. And how about someone who inspires you in the work that you do? There are a lot of people, but I'll, I'll pick somebody from Australia. I often pick my mentor at the University of Kansas, Don Deschler. And I could easily pick my uh, life partner, Jenny, who Don and Jenny are the two people who've changed my life the most for the good. But I'll pick John Campbell, the, the founder of Growth Coaching International. He is to the core a good person. And just by being around him, I spent a lot of time, John and I have become very good friends, and I spent a lot of time with him. And um, just his decency as a human being is really inspiring. Mm. And there's a great, I listened to the conversation you have with John on your podcast, a great conversation between two people who are just so thoughtful about the ways in which, you know, we might use language or ask questions or use coaching as a, as a tool. Yeah, great conversation that you had with John there. I'd say everything about John, every ounce of his being is focused on doing uh, loving actions, benevolence towards others. There's no, I've never felt even, I, probably when he drives through Sydney, he's got to have moments of anger, but um, <laughs> it, it's just very inspiring to be around someone who's, whose focus is on uh, helping others, doing good for other people. And, and so the people around him are inspired doing by good. all the people who work for him, the people at Growth Coaching. They, they feel his spirit and, and it, it shapes the way they interact. It shapes the culture. It's, a be- it's really a beautiful thing. And how about something you've got coming up that you're excited about? Well, I plan to go see some, one of the finals games, and I really want to go to the GABA. I'm hoping that Brisbane stays number two on the ladder, and I can go see them in the GABA. And I, Richmond is my team, but they're, not gonna, they're out now, so I have to enjoy all the other games. And uh, I hope to go to when I, I, I can't wait to come to Australia. I really love Australia. I could, I could move there, but unfortunately, Jenny could not. So it's too far from her family. So I'm excited. All in, I'm going to be in Gold Coast for a week. I know Gold Coast seems kind of touristy, but I love that beach. I think it's just such a beautiful beach. And uh, if I get to see the Lions, probably they'll win at home. So it'd be great to see a game at the Gap. I think that's that's what I'm hoping to see a finals game somewhere, either MCG or or the Gabba would be great. But the Adelaide Oval, someday I'll have to come see you. I'd love to see a game there too, but that's probably not going to happen this trip. So It's a good oval. But, yeah, so you're coming to Queensland and Victoria. You want to see some AFL. Uh, if you're on the Gold Coast, I can also highly recommend the Moreton Bay Bug Rolls at a place called Rick Shaw's. I think you should add that to your list. I'll go there, definitely. And finally, Jim, if you were to distill your – it sounds like there's a lot of thinking that you've got at the moment around all kinds of things, but if there, you were to distill your current thinking about education to its essence – What's one thought or resource that you would leave listeners with? I would say learning is one of the most important things in life. It, it helps us be more. It opens the world up to us. I mean, think about life before you could read and after you could read. And, uh, and I think we're wired for learning. I think when we're not learning, uh, there's just something that's not alive in us that we're, we're wired to experience. And learning is exciting and it's uh, it's core. It's a core thing. And so I think to work in education 
you like you are working right at the heart of one of the most important things. And so if we can create learning organizations that foster learning, that multiply people's capacities instead of diminish them, that's a, that's a really powerful thing to go after. And I think anybody who's chosen to be a teacher, they've made the right decision because they're working on one of the most important things. And there are very few people in the world who have more potential for impact than a teacher. And often the students don't even realize the impact of the teacher because they're too developmentally young to achieve it. But I just think learning is, uh, is fundamental to a fulfilling life. And how cool that that's our area of, of interest, you know, and that we get to learn about learning, which, so I think, I think that's, that's what comes to mind. Thank you. And certainly, you know, your life's work has been about learning and it sounds like something that you, it's for you, something that you live and breathe and continue to, to do. No, we've got a long way to go. <laughs> so, <laughs> well, it's never done, is it? a lot more so, to learn. That's, never that's done. for sure. Well, Jim, thank you so much today for joining me on the Edu Salon. It's a pleasure. It's so great to see you. Hopefully I'll see you sometime soon and uh, we'll have to have you on our podcast too. I'd love to, I'd love to turn this around mm -hmm. so we have the conversation in the other direction. That would be great. Great, Jim. Great to see you. Take care. Thanks so much. Thank you for listening to the Edu Salon podcast. You can join the conversation by subscribing to this podcast and sharing it with your network by giving this podcast a rating or review and by connecting with Deb and her guests on social media.